When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a message to Republicans. Okay, we get it. COVID is the precious and you love it. You love COVID so much you want it to spread in the schools, at the office, in the Walmart, on the cruise ships and at the club. That gray spongy ball with the red spikes, you want it pumping through your veins with an ivermectin chaser. Why do you love it so daggone much? Well, we have absolutely no bloody idea. But here's the thing, you weirdos. Everyone else? Everyone else hates COVID. It is ravaging classrooms and hospitals across the nation, like in Southern Illinois, where zero ICU beds are available. Similar shortages are happening all over the South, including in Alabama, where a man's family said he died after being turned away from 43 hospitals. While in South Carolina, 20 children need critical care due to COVID-19. And you see this beautiful couple? They both died in their 30s from COVID, leaving behind five kids including a newborn daughter. So yeah, the rest of us hate that this is happening. Even the Pope. The Pope hates COVID too. He loves everybody. He also says get vaccinated. Yet you, you Republicans, seem to be A-OK with COVID running wild. And then you came for California, trying to boot a Democratic governor from a blue state and hand it over to the COVID candidate. I don't believe the science uh, suggests that young people should be vaccinated. I don't believe the science suggests that young people uh, should have to wear masks uh, at, at school. I'm not sure the science is settled on that at all. And young people are not likely to contract the, uh, the uh, coronavirus. And when they do, their symptoms are likely to be mild and they're not likely to be hospitalized. And they're certainly not likely to die. If misinformation could kill, it all helps to explain why Governor Gavin Newsom beat the recall effort. And by a lot winning support for more than 60% of the electorate. According to exit polls, the most important issue for voters was the coronavirus. And when asked about the governor's job on COVID, 65% said his policies were about right or not strict enough. So Republicans, your thirst for COVID is why you lost. Nobody likes your policies that threaten our safety and our kids. You, you may want COVID. You may want to ingest horse dewormer and attend far too many funerals. But we, we don't. And instead of just saying that or tweeting that or fighting about that, California voted that. It is perhaps the first real tangible proof that your creepy little COVID-loving death cult ways are not going to work for you at the ballot box next year. In fact, it's political suicide and also apparently talk radio suicide because your brilliant little COVID plan is killing your right-wing hosts. The majority of us Americans want things like, I don't know, better infrastructure, good schools, gun reforms, jobs, and the right to vote. You know what else we want? We want to live, not die from COVID. Joining me now, David Pluff, former Obama campaign manager, and Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. And David, look, you're the political guru, not me. So I, I, I don't know everything about politics, David. But I do know that being the people on the side of COVID strikes me as bad politics. Are you surprised that Republicans have seemed to think embracing COVID as the precious 
and trying to get it into every school building, cruise ship, job place, Walmart, Texaco, everywhere. They're trying to get it in everywhere. Are you surprised that that turns out to be not so great politics? Joey, sadly, nothing surprises me anymore. But yeah, last <laughs> night, uh, the recall was the first test post-2020 of how this may play out. And I know everybody says California is unique. The recall certainly is unique. I hope we never have another one. But if you look at what happened, so out here, uh, they're called no party preference voters, NPPs, but they're independents. Um, about 90% of them, so we're not talking Democrats, independents are vaccinated. And the exit polls suggest Newsom won them over two to one. The Newsom campaign believes they won Republicans in the barrier by over 20% and did very well down south. So if you're looking at 22, I think Democrats should have a more expansive view of the votes that are available to them. And it's basically the vaccinated. <laughs> so you're talking, yes. you're not going to get all of them. But when you talk about, hey, you're fishing in a pond of two thirds as opposed to just like 54, 55 percent, uh, I think you can make progress. Uh, and, and the Republicans clearly are going to continue to dig in and dig in and dig in. Uh, and, and I think, you know, ultimately, it's it's a tragedy for the country. It's a tragedy for people, for families, for businesses. Uh, but this shows that we can never again have leadership in power uh, who doesn't take something like a pandemic seriously. So, yeah, I think last night was really, really important. And we have to carry some of the lessons from the recall out to the rest of the country and certainly in governor's races where you've had Democratic governors doing the right thing, a bunch of Republican governors with some exceptions. But DeSantis being a good example, doing the wrong things, you have to make them pay a price for that. Indeed. I mean, and not even taking the pandemic seriously, Jason, but it seemed to embrace the pandemic and seeming to want to push the pandemic and make it worse and say we want COVID. They actually seem to want it in their lives and among their kids. I have to show you this, this heat map. This is an incredible pair of maps. Look at the screen, everyone. OK, yeah. this is a map yeah. in which you can see the blue. It's counterintuitive, but the blue on the map onto my left, to screen left, is where people voted. Yes. Recall Governor Newsom. On the right side, my screen right, the red down the middle is the COVID hotspots. So basically, <laughs> Jason, where people wanted to recall Newsom is where there's the most COVID. So they're like, give us more. Inject it in us. Is there a way that we can drink it in a Kool-Aid cup? Because we want it and we want it bad. And we want this man to get out of our way. We want our COVID. It's insane. They, they want their COVID, they want their iodine, they want their ivermectin, they want it injected into their rears. Whatever it is that these people want, I don't entirely understand. And, and Joy, look, I am, I, am, I am stressing my brain to go back throughout history. I don't know if it's the old Republican Party, the old Democratic Party, the Whig Party. I don't remember a party ever being successful saying, we're for smallpox. Um, you know, we're for scurvy. I don't, I don't know that that's ever happened. <laughs> Right, right. The pox party. Yes, a pox upon all houses. Right. I, I don't think that's a good plan. But but here's the, the caution I have to have about California for people to understand. It is incredibly easy to vote in California. They, they sent mail yes. ballots to everybody. Right. There were apps that you could use. There was information available. So, yes, in a in an in equal measure on a neutral playing field, the failure of Republicans to address covid should be a huge boon for Democrats in 2022. Yeah. But that's only in a state where voting is reasonably easy and accessible. So that's not going to be the case in Florida. It's not going to be the case in Texas. And it won't be the case in Georgia. Well, that's why they're going to make it hard, because I think that Ron DeSantis, look, he may be 
maybe a sociopath. We don't know what his, his pathology is, but he's not stupid. And I think that he understands that if he is going to inflict death on school children, he's going to have to make it real hard for their parents to vote. Right. And here and, and they're going to do Republicans anything they can in the states where they for whatever reason, these governors love covid. They heart covid. This is how they feel about covid. They want to spread it. But they know that they also can't get reelected because the majority of people probably feel like this. This is a California exit poll, but I doubt that it's different in any other state. Sixty five percent of people in that exit poll said that they believe getting vaccinated is a public health responsibility. Only thirty two percent said they think it's a personal choice. That exit poll also showed that people wanted more strict policy, not less strict policy, because most people want their lives back. You have this. um, What what is the guy's name here who said that he wanted Dan Crenshaw, Dan Crenshaw, Republican, said, I'm honestly curious, he says. (laughs) Why Californians didn't want some balance in their government works well in deep blue states like Massachusetts and Maryland, both the Republican governors. Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan are the governors of those states. But, David, they're not insane. They're not saying more covid covid in your schools. They're not they're not pushing covid. So the the divided government argument, in my mind, won't work for Republicans this time around. Do you agree? Well, by the way, uh, Joy, any Republican who's been responsible in the pandemic is at great risk at losing a primary. That's where we are. That too. So basically, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that there's a third of the people out here in California who voted for the recall. There's a third of the people who say it should be your personal choice. Yes, the Republicans are making it harder to vote, so that third has more power in general elections. But let's make no mistake: that third or thirty percent, that hardcore MAGA base. They're going to drive Republican politics and therefore a big part of our country's dynamic for a very, very long time. Uh, And they're not going anywhere. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, Jason makes a good point about voting. Um, But I think the other thing to watch here carefully, listen, when you're in a swing district or a swing state and you think the race is going to be like 51, 49, you've got to scratch and claw for every advantage. And one thing to watch is let's look at Florida. I think we're not even at 55, 58 percent fully vaccinated. But 90 percent of people over 65 are. So here's people who've been vaccinated. And this is true all over the country. You know, Florida very well, Joy. They're safe. (laughs) They're happy to be vaccinated. They'd like their kids and their grandkids to be vaccinated. And I think you could make some inroads with seniors over this issue. Uh, You know, Biden did better than Hillary did in 2020. But I think now we might have an opportunity. I don't want to overstate it. I'm not saying we're going to win seniors by 20 points. But if you just overperform there by four or five points, because these are people who are less, I think, um, sensitive to disinformation because they took the vaccine, even if they had questions and they're healthy and they're safe. And so I would watch this very carefully. Can Democrats overperform with voters over 65 just by two to three points? And that could make an enormous difference in a midterm election. Yeah. And, and Jason, you know, I'm the biggest Florida skeptic when it comes to elections there because they are difficult. And we know David knows how to win them because he did it before with President Obama. And it, it but Florida can be won, but it is always close. And, and that is my question to you, Jason. Because the Democratic Party in Florida is not exactly always super savvy about these things, right? But there is a case that could be made. It's about also candidate choice. Potentially, Charlie Crist is on the ballot, or potentially the current agricultural secretary, Nikki Freed, both of whom are very aggressive about making the case about kids. And that might be the case that needs to be made. Obviously, Val Demings being on that Senate, uh, on the Senate side of that race. Have Democrats maybe stumbled upon the right issue and the right potential candidates who could make that case? Charlie Crist used to be um, in charge of education in Florida, you know, in addition to being governor. And so if it's about children, that might be a smarter way to, to, to play it. 
I wish I could say that Americans in general cared about children, but after Parkland, not seeing massive gun control in that state doesn't necessarily lead me to believe if, if you're not concerned about random maniacs coming in and shooting kids in school, most people aren't going to be as concerned as they need to be about a virus that makes it, makes kids sick and makes them you know possibly be in a hospital and some of them actually dying. I will say this, though, about Florida. Little little Marco, Sleepy Joe, Slick Willie. There is no worse nickname in, po- in politics than Ron DeSantis, right? Like that that sticks. There. It sounds terrible, and that is a name that he has actually earned for himself. If yeah. the Democrats can turn, and this is what didn't happen in California, but if the Democrats can make it a referendum on DeSantis rather than a choice between DeSantis and whatever the Democrat is, they might be able to pull it off because you never want to have a referendum on yourself as the incumbent, especially when you fail the way he is. I got to let uh, uh, let our expert here, David, what do you think about that, about that strategy? Well, listen, um, we have to improve our performance in Miami-Dade, as you know. That being said, yeah. uh, I think it's way too early to give up on Florida. First of all, in a presidential race, it's too many electoral votes. And I think you can piece this together with the right candidates. And I, I think you're right. I think we have some interesting ones. Uh, but yeah, I think these governors, uh, legislative leaders who've stood in the way of vaccinations, who've belittled COVID, who don't want masks in school. I mean, here's the thing. We're basically two thirds of the country in support of mask mandates in schools. So again, they're speaking to their sick, perverted one third of the country, you know, that gets injected uh, by Fox News and Sinclair and Breitbart, all this stuff. Listen, I believe today, Joy, uh, the only country that has a worse COVID outbreak than the United States is Mongolia. So if you can't make something of that politically as tragic as that is, uh, maybe you don't deserve to be in politics. Uh, and I think one thing is New- Newsom made this campaign about vaccines and about COVID. And I think he Democrats did. need to make these campaigns, of course, because it's, it's not just COVID. It's the economy. It's education. It's the economy. It's all it's, the yes. things we care about. Yes. It's right. getting your life back. Schools and that has always been Biden's best issue. It is every Democrat's best issue. I got to go to you on this, Jason, because the only thing the one thing I am expert in is West Indian, older West Indians rebuking and scolding you in the in, in, And this happened in Trinidad, where do we have the audio of it or do we just have a headline? We might just have a headline. Trinidad and Tobago's minister of health said yesterday, unfortunately, we wasted a lot of time yesterday running down this false claim. That's the best I can do with my Trinidadian accent. And he said, you know, we wasted a lot of time. He rebuked the idea that somebody's uh, cojones were extremely largo uh, in Trinidad and Tobago because of the vaccine. Your thoughts? Can I just point out how ridiculous it is? Like I said, I I tweeted this. No one can ever say that disinformation isn't real. They wasted government resources because of a crazy story that Nicki Minaj told. And now she's sitting here cozying up with Tucker Carlson. This is why she lost to the people's champ Cardi B, because nobody who actually cares about their fans, supporters or COVID would want to align themselves with Tucker Carlson, especially against some nonsense that's killing black people at a higher rate than any other group, uh, any other people in this country. So I'm going to just be contrarian a little bit. I actually, you know, Tucker Carlson said he wanted to do a deep investigative report on the the cojones. On swollen something. On the swollen (laughs) cojones. And I think he should do that. I actually want to see that investigative report. I want him to go down there like he went to Victor Orban. And I want him to talk with that gentleman and find out why it is that that his, you know, future wife left him. And just how large these melons were. I think he should go and find out. Right. It's an investigative right. report that we need. Go and do it, Tucker. I know you want to. You really, really want to. All right. Thank you very much, David. Plum, Jason Johnson. Let me stop before we get in trouble. Thank you, guys. Still ahead on the readout, calling out Republican-led states 
that are moving ahead with some extreme policies on everything from women's rights to voting rights to your right to stay COVID free. Plus, what is up with the right's frankly creepy, weird obsession with Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? And marking the 58th anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing with a survivor who lost her sister in that infamous terroristic attack. Plus, powerful emotional testimony today from the sexual abuse survivors of Larry Nasser. We'll take a deep dive into the systemic failures that allowed that abuse to go on in tonight's Absolute Worst. The readout takes up this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Republicans used to love to wail and moan about personal freedom, but they've clearly jettisoned that orthodoxy as they've tied themselves to the whims of one man, the 2020 loser and twice impeached disgraced former president. The examples are stark. Texas Republicans pushed through an extreme new law banning abortion after six weeks yesterday and uh, six weeks. And yesterday, the Department of Justice asked a federal judge to temporarily block the enforcement of that law. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, state Republicans, in a breathtaking breach of privacy, voted Wednesday to subpoena Governor Tom Wolf's administration. Get this for detailed records of every registered voter in the state, including personal information like the last four digits of their Social Security numbers. There's no evidence supporting the baseless claims of voter fraud continuously repeated by these Republicans, but they're doing that stuff anyway. For more, I'm joined by Ellie Mastal, Justice Correspondent for the Nation, and Maria Teresa Kumar, President of and CEO of Voto Latino. Ellie, I'm going to start with you because it does feel like the, the, the trend among conservatives now is that you actually don't have any privacy, that, the, that privacy doesn't exist that you only are allowed to do what this one-third of the country wants you to do, and if not, they'll sick other citizens on you. And in some cases, they're getting backed up by none other than the Supreme Court. Your thoughts? Yeah, it'd be great if we had a federal government that was willing to do a job and do something to stop them. Like right now, we have an absentee federal government because a couple of Democrats— you know, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, probably a couple others that are happy not to be named because they will not use congressional power to stop these states from acting a fool. Right. Like the the the, the all of these voter things could be stopped with the For the People Act or even for the Freedom to Vote Act, which was just uh, announced yesterday by from Amy Klobuchar. Right. There, there are ways to stop them through the voting through the Voting Rights Act. The, the abortion laws, yes, the DOJ is suing. It's a good lawsuit. But Joe Biden promised a whole-of-government response. Where's the rest of the government? Texas is an open revolt from the Constitution. There are rights in the Constitution that no longer exist in, in Texas. Where's Where are the troops? 
I mean, honestly, yeah. where where are the executive orders? Where's the where's the Department of Transportation going in and airlifting people out of Texas back to America to protect their rights? There there is just more that the federal government could be doing to stop these states from acting out. And right now they're not doing it. And that's why they continue to act out. Yeah, my friend MDK, what do, what do we do here? Because a lot of the people who are going to be the most vulnerable to this stuff are people of color, people who can least afford to defend a lawsuit, an Uber driver who just happened to be driving and suddenly faces a lawsuit by some rando that decided that they that they participated in getting a woman to an abortion clinic. I, I do. I guess I have the same question for you. Do you feel that their whole of government response is, is lacking here when Texas is so renegade? I think that we have to acknowledge that this is an orchestrated effort. What is happening in Texas has become increasingly joy, kind of like the experimental lab of the of the right. And whatever sticks, they start selling it every, everywhere else. This is not AstroTurf. The fact that just in Texas, you have... This is not grassroots. This is AstroTurf. This is coming from the Heritage Foundation. It's coming from the, the right to life individuals, uh, organizations. And we have to take a moment and take a step back and say, well, what can movement leaders do, but what can the government do and how can they intercept? How can they intercede? They're doing it right now with abortion, but they need to do it much more with that when it comes to our access to the right to vote. We need to have a frank conversation that the filibuster is preventing a progressive agenda where a multicultural America went out and voted and said, this is the future we want for the 21st century. And until yeah. we actually pass the For the People's Act or the Freedom to Vote Act, Everything else is going to be at a standstill. And this is where we need the government to come up because they have a mandate from the American population of where they want the future to go. You know, and Ellie, the other piece, I think, is that the, the Supreme Court, which no longer holds the esteem, let's just be blunt, of the American people. There's a new Quinnipiac poll showing that support for the, or the approval of the Supreme Court uh, is now underwater. Thirty seven percent find it in esteem and 50 percent disapprove of their job, of their job, which is not surprising. This is what Justice Breyer said, which seems to me that he's completely out to lunch and disconnected from real life. He told Good Morning America that the Supreme Court's recent 5-4 decision allowing Texas to effectively ban abortion across the state was, quote, very bad, but not politically motivated. He added that we don't trade votes and members of the court have different judicial philosophies. Um, he said on retirement, he said there are many different considerations, but I don't intend to die there on the court. I hope not. Like he seems to it, it, maybe the issue is that the Supreme Court members don't live in the sort of normal world. They're so elite and so closed off from reality that maybe the court is no longer useful to defend our rights. Do you do you agree or disagree? There, there's certainly an aspect where the Supreme Court justices need to get out there and touch some grass, right? To to get out of the ivory tower and put their feet on the ground and actually like understand the world they've been living in the whole time. That's certainly that's always kind of a problem with these nine kind of heads in vats that try to tell us what the law is from on high. But there's another aspect here. And the aspect is that, you know, what Breyer said is exactly what I expect white men to say at this point, right? Because at the end of the day, for the people on the Supreme Court, it's never their rights that are on the chopping block. Yeah. It's very easy to kind of sit back from an intellectual remove and think, hmm, I wonder what the right is, right, when it's not your life, when it's not your body, when it's not your enfranchisement that is on the chopping block. And that's what that's where Breyer is, that's where he's beyond out of touch. He's obsolete. All right. Because yeah. he still lives in a world where like him and like eight friends on Martha's Vineyard are the only people that matter. Whereas on the ground, things are being taken from people and he 
can't stop it, won't stop it, and then won't even call a thing a thing. Yeah. Uh, Marie, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the other sort of out-of-touch agency. The FBI is getting roasted right now for the Larry Nassar situation, which we're going to talk about later in the show. But, I mean, I also am aware that they did absolutely nothing when it came to Brett Kavanaugh. He was investigated for like three minutes on uh, allegations, very serious allegations, by a, a former high school mate that he— uh, attempted to sexually assault her. Uh, and the issue they had was that they claimed that the um, the FBI did not have jurisdiction to do anything about it. So there's, there's that issue as well. And, and I'm worried that some of our agencies are not sort of outfitted to protect us writ large. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Joy. It's that when you say, when you have a justice that does not reflect America and values, and you don't have an FBI that can actually meet people where they are, you miss a lot of big things. If you contrast what Breyer did compared to Sotomayor when it came to the abortion, uh, the abortion ban, she was very clear. She, her life experience was able to actually create and provide judgment that actually met the world in the 21st century. And that is what probably is lacking in the FBI is looking at their statistics and saying, who is at the table making the decisions? Because if it was a young woman being speaking to another woman, you better believe that that woman would have actually said, let's investigate a little yeah. bit further. Absolutely. I, I think Sonia Sotomayor needs to be uh, needs to get the reverence RBG got. But really quickly, I'm going to give you the last word on this uh, MTK I just have to get your comments on the weird obsession at Fox News over AOC. They're like freaking out because she wore this dress that on the back said uh, tax the rich. I get the feeling they're just obsessed with looking at her rear end. But I just would love to know what your thoughts are, because they seem to be staring at her in a very creepy way. You get you get AOC to get a free dinner at thirty thousand dollars and says, by the way, tax the rich. She did deployed what a Botolino program always does. It's like we meet the, the messenger where we are. We meet the yeah. audience where they are. She went into there and said, you know what? Tax the rich because this is absurd. And if no one else recognizes this absurdity, I'm going to point it to you, because just the fact that the dinner was worth thirty thousand yeah. dollars speaks to exactly yep. what she was trying to get. And then she the did Republican it. Party, you know, she did it. And the Republican Party, look, they they recognize hey, that she she's smart. She's good looking. Yep. And at the same time, yep. she brings and she's the girl who wouldn't date them in high school. And they still mad about it. <laughs> Ellie Mastal, Maria Teresa Kumar. Thank you all very much. And for tonight's moment of joy, start spreading the news. That's right, folks. Broadway is back. New York City was electric last night as some of Broadway's biggest shows returned to the stage 18 months after COVID forced them to shut down. Huge audiences who were required to be masked and fully vaccinated, thank you, roared with applause as Broadway stars surprised them with special messages before the show. It took six years to get this on the first time. I'm so glad it didn't take six years to come back. Thank you for getting vaccinated and wearing a mask and supporting live theater. Theater in New York is the lifeblood and soul of the city. Okay, so I have to say it as I hold on to the ladder. There's no place like home. I couldn't have said it any better, Glinda. Still ahead on the readout. The extreme weather events we're experiencing may be just the beginning of a feedback loop that will impact all of our lives. And the phrase climate change uh, just doesn't seem to do it justice. We are seeing the threat of a full-on climate collapse. I will explain when we come back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. 
For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. This might be one of the most interesting, disturbing, and puzzling stories to come along in a long time. Something is happening to the honeybees in this country. It's called Colony Collapse Disorder. Beekeepers in 27 states report disappearing honeybees. So far, no one knows why. During the winter of 2006-2007, bees started disappearing. And no one could figure out why. Experts coined the term colony collapse, when the worker bees needed to sustain a hive just flat out disappear. The phenomenon continued, with 2012 being the worst year yet. Now, while bees can be pesky, we actually need them. They pollinate more than a third of the world's crops. And though there are many possible reasons for colony collapse, guess what one reason the bee population is dwindling might be? Yep, you got it, our rapidly warming climate. And it's not just the bees. Insects could be totally extinct in the next century, prompting what scientists call a catastrophic collapse of nature. So in a sense, bees may be the buzzy little canaries in the coal mine for the whole planet. And they may also be able to teach us something about how we move forward. We don't have all the answers for why bees are disappearing, but we do know that that what we're doing to planet Earth is causing a lot of problems. Sea levels are rising. Entire states are burning, and heat waves are making it unsafe for many to be outside at all. So, to take a page from the bees, we need to start thinking about this as not just climate change or even a climate crisis, but as the threat of a climate collapse. And that collapse looms closer every single day, unless our politicians decide to actually do something about it. I'm joined now by Jamie Margolin, co-founder and executive director of Zero Hour, an NBC News meteorologist Bill Karens. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Bill, I actually am going to start with you because the bee thing, I went into deep wormhole on this. And one of our producers reminded me of it. And and it's it's one of those things where, you know, I don't like bugs. You know, I famously really don't like bugs. But they they are part of our ecosystem. And in talking with people who deal with climate change, and this is their their beat, we've been talking a lot more about how our terminology isn't good enough because it isn't climate change. Change can be good or bad. This is the threat of collapse. And I wonder from your point of view, as somebody who looks at the way sort of climate works in terms of whether you agree with that. Yeah, I mean, my job at MSNBC is to to cover, you know, the climate emergency. I mean, that's what we're calling it now. That's how we've changed our terminology in the last couple of years is because it just doesn't sound alarming enough to say, you know, Uh, global temperature rising or however else these other terms we have. It's an emergency that's happening. And you mentioned, you know, we can watch nature. I've seen many articles about how the bird migrations are changing, how the beaver dams are going higher up into Canada uh, because that's where the ice is melting more. So there's a lot of examples like that, Joy, and that, yes, I am so glad and so happy that we are done trying to convince all the deniers. We spent two decades doing that, wasting time. And now we're actually trying to do something. And some of President Biden's initiatives are so aggressive, but they're so needed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I will just point out some of the some of the things that are in this reconciliation bill. This is the three point five trillion dollar bill, clean electricity payment program, clean energy manufacturing, federal procurement of energy efficient materials, meaning like, you know, electric cars for the uh, federal fleet, climate research, environmental justice investments, Um, the cost of doing it um, versus the cost of not doing it. Climate events could cost us ninety eight point nine billion dollars 
just that's just 2020 numbers. Um, and it could cost one point nine eight trillion dollars um, uh, from 1980 through this year. So, Jamie, let's talk to you about it. You're only 19 years old. But your demographic is the one that is the most concerned generally about climate change. I hear more about climate from, you know, my kids who are in their early 20s and from people your age than we normally do from anyone else. And here's a a poll about anxiety among 16 to 25 year olds. Fifty nine percent are very or extremely worried about climate change. Fifty percent feel sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, guilty. Forty five percent say feelings about climate change negatively affect their daily life. Talk about how this emergency looks from your point of view. The way this emergency looks from my point of view and from the point of view of my generation and people on the front lines is as an avoidable or as a could have been avoidable catastrophe. And we see it looming closer and closer and intertwining with every aspect of life. A lot of my friends are terrified about planning to have kids in the future or have families. They're like, how could I bring someone into this world? You were talking about species collapse, things like that. And there's a general sadness. I feel like climate anxiety isn't the right word. I was speaking with other people in the movement. I'm 19 now, but I've been in the climate movement since I was 14. So I've been in this fighting for climate justice for a long time, since 2016, since I was a freshman in high school, and now I'm a sophomore in college. And throughout all this time, the anxiety of the climate crisis loomed over and was overwhelming, not just for me, but for everyone I fought alongside. And I was talking to them and they say at this point, it feels more like climate depression, climate hopelessness, because anxiety implies fear of a future event. when in reality, climate is here. And so it's like, how do we overcome that immense depression of the ecological collapse that is because of the greed of our leaders and the people in power and corporations who would rather have money than good lives for their children? Like, how do we psychologically deal with that? That is difficult for our generation. And what would you like to see leaders do? Well, first step to getting out of a hole is to stop digging. So halting all new fossil fuel infrastructure, halting all fossil fuel subsidies. Um, the, The government subsidizes the fossil fuel industry. That needs to stop. We need to stop funding our own destruction. Um, There's also a fight that indigenous people um, and people on the front lines are fighting the fight to stop line three, which is very similar to the Dakota Access um, pipeline fight for those who remember. But basically another fossil fuel project is being built on indigenous land against their consent. There needs to be a no more new fossil fuel projects, but B, indigenous rights need to be respected and um, the prosperity and um, and the respect of indigenous communities and the rights of indigenous communities is directly intertwined with climate justice. Um, Most of the world's biodiversity is protected by indigenous people. So also um, stopping line three Biden right now, if he felt like it could stop line three. And I encourage everyone at home. If you're like, what do I do about the climate? I don't know what to do. I want to take an action for a fight. Stop line three, Google it. Yeah. And, you know, Bill, I'll give you the, the we're, as we're, we're running out of time. We do know that people who are indigenous and people of color in general are, are more on the front lines because they're going to face the effects earlier. Um, the effects are going to hit these communities earlier. But the challenge that we have in talking about this on television generally is that people feel like when you're talking about climate, you're talking about taking something away from them, taking away my, my fancy SUV, taking away my stake, taking away whatever. How do we get past that and start having a conversation about what we can do positively. 
But you have to learn about it first. And when you learn about it, and she was right, it's kind of depressing. I mean, when you yeah. see how huge of the problem is. is, all of the greatest countries got powerful off of fossil fuels. So yep. they don't want to go off the fossil fuels. All these nations want to stay powerful, including ours. We yep. want our economy to be robust. We have enough people on this planet that are struggling to put food on their plates and roofs uh, over their houses to protect their families. We can't ignore those people. But at the same time, we have this looming problem that we have to address. And in the reconciliation yeah. bill, I mean, Biden wants to go from our renewables. Right now, it's 20 percent. That's how much of our energy that you use and I use in our houses from renewables. He wants to go up to 80 percent in a short period of time. And that is the biggest yeah. battle with Republicans because it is yeah. a huge threat to coal and natural gas immediately. And if you want to change things, that's how you have to do it. What's the point of us all getting electric vehicles if we're going to charge them from the coal plant down the that's block? Right. So you You're have right. to start from the beginning. And that's where and the it, big fight is going to happen. And that's where the biggest battle is. And that's where we have to go to money in politics, because that's the problem. They're funding these politicians and not just Republicans. Hi, Joe Manchin. I'm looking at you. J Jamie Margolin, thank you very Hi, much. Bill Karens, thank you very much. Really appreciate you both. Up next, when she was just 12 years old, Sarah Collins Rudolph survived one of the most horrific acts of domestic terrorism, the bombing of Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Church that took place on this day 58 years ago. Four little girls, including her sister, were killed. She joins me next to tell her story. Fifty-eight years ago today, on the morning of Sunday, September 15th, 12-year-old Sarah Collins and her sister Addie Mae Collins were preparing for a youth day service at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. They were with their friends in the ladies' lounge in the basement when an explosion suddenly ripped through the church. A bomb planted by white supremacists had detonated just outside the lounge, shattering windows and blowing a gaping hole in the side of the building. The blast was so strong it destroyed the cars parked along the street and was reportedly felt as far as three miles away. Most tragically, however, it took the lives of the four young girls with Sarah Collins that morning, including her sister, Addie Mae. It was so gruesome that the body of one of the victims was so mangled, she could only be identified by her ring. And though she was only feet away, Sarah Collins somehow survived. Not only was her life spared, but she remained standing through the blast, badly injured, but miraculously still standing. A photographer for Life magazine captured this haunting image from her two-month stay in the hospital, where doctors removed two dozen shards of glass from her eyes, the lone survivor of a most heinous crime. Remember, 1963 was a momentous and dangerous year in the struggle for civil rights. The March on Washington had taken place just weeks earlier. And just months before that, in June, civil rights activist Medgar Evers had been assassinated in Mississippi by a member of the Klan. But the backlash was especially violent in Birmingham under Governor George Wallace. It's where Bull Connor unleashed police dogs and fire hoses on civil rights demonstrators that same summer. On top of that, the city had seen so many racially motivated bombings by then, it had earned the nickname Bombingham. But the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church was the first of those attacks to claim lives. And though it gained national attention, it took years for murder charges to be filed against the suspected perpetrators, all of whom were devout members of the Ku Klux Klan. One was prosecuted in 1977. But almost 40 years passed before two more surviving suspects were arrested and sentenced to life in prison in 2002. It was proof of the old maxim that justice delayed is justice denied. And it was certainly denied to the only living victim, Sarah Collins Rudolph, who still lives with the trauma of that day. 
It was decades before she could tell her story, finally publishing the book The Fifth Little Girl, Sole Survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church Bombing. Sarah Collins Rudolph, survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church Bombing, joins me now. Ms. Collins Rudolph, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Um, and I, I hate to start this way, but I, I, I would ask you if you could just recount for us that day um, and what happened in the basement of that church. On that day when we arrived at the church, uh, we went into the basement to freshen up because we had walked and we was having a good time doing a, the first my sister Harry. Uh, I can hear you. We can, but I, I can, can hear you, hear but I think you might be muted. Yes. Are you are you unmuted? I can hear yes. you in my ear. She says okay. I'm muted. All right. Can you We're hear me now? now? Yes, I can okay. hear you. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, on that day, we was going to have a youth day program, and we were so excited. So we came into the latest lounge to freshen up. And uh, while we were in the latest lounge, uh, I was looking out the door and I seen Denise McNair and Cynthia Wesley and Carol Robinson, their class turned out. So they came in the latest lounge and went on to the other side to use the stall. When they came out, Denise McNair, she was in front. So she walked over to my sister, Addie, and asked Addie to tie the sash on her dress. And when she turned to reach her hand out the tie, that's when I heard a loud noise, boom. It was so loud. All I can do was holler, Jesus, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. And uh, but she didn't answer. So all of a sudden I heard someone holler, somebody bombed the 16th Street Church. And I found out who that person was. He was one of the deacons upstairs when he heard the noise. He said he came down to check it and see where what it was. But when he began to take the steps, the stealth had been blown away. So he jumped down and he looked into the hole and I was just standing there. And uh, it was just awful. And you so, were only uh, 12, you were only 12 years old. And, and, you know, I have to imagine that that trauma, you know, affected you emotionally, you know, losing your sister, but even just witnessing, being the only witness to that bombing. How did that impact yeah. your life? For a long time, I was angry. I was angry at what had happened because of the fact that my sister was killed and my friend was killed and I lost, you know, my uh, right eye. And I went through life. I was in a nervous state. And I the trauma just had me so fearful. I was really afraid, really, to go back into a church. Yeah. And how did you sort of grow past that to the point where you felt like you could write about what happened to you? Well, one day I went to church and uh, this pastor, he, he seeing me, he, he called me out and he was letting me know what, what, what God had showed him about me. He was telling me, he said, God is showing me you suffer with a, a nervous condition and you uh, suffer with a lot of fear. And he told me that God was going to heal me now. So he laid his hand on me and then I fell to the floor. And when I got up, all of it was gone. I, I yeah. wasn't fearful anymore. So that really made me uh, start talking about the bombing. 
Now, the, the, that church had been used for voter registration and for civil rights organizing, and that is one of the reasons it was targeted. Dr. King talked about the apathy in the community uh, and saying that that was partly to blame and that people needed to be not apathetic when it came to voting rights. It was a controversial statement that he made. How do you feel about the fact that we're still fighting to this day for the right to vote? It made me real angry about it because uh, so many people, they was injured. So many, so many people was killed for those rights for them try to turn it around now. Yeah. They shouldn't turn it around because we deserve to vote. And uh, those uh, girls, uh, yeah. uh, they'll really change everything, you know, to, to for us to get our voting rights. Indeed. Uh, well, Sarah Collins Rudolph, thank you so much for telling your story. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. God bless. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, the absolute worst is next. It was a gut-wrenching and emotional day of testimony in Washington as four elite United States gymnasts, Simone Biles, Michaela Maroney, Maggie Nichols, and Allie Reisman, recounted horrific and repeated sexual abuse they endured from former USA Gymnastics team Dr. Larry Nasser and the system that failed them. To be clear, I blame Larry Nasser, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. We have been failed and we deserve answers. What is the point? of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer. They had legal, legitimate evidence of child abuse and did nothing. USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the FBI have all betrayed me and those who were abused by Larry Nassar after I reported. It was like serving innocent children up to a pedophile on a silver platter. Why did none of these organizations warn anyone? I am tired of waiting for people to do the right thing because my abuse was enough and we deserve justice. The FBI was alerted about Nasser's actions in 2015 and two months ago, a Justice Department watchdog found the Bureau botched the investigation into Nasser's actions. In doing so, Nasser went on to abuse as many as 120 more athletes. Today's testimony comes a day after it was reported that the FBI agent who failed to pursue Nasser has been fired. And FBI Director Chris Wray, who wasn't leading the bureau during the original investigation, said its actions were unacceptable and he was profoundly sorry the bureau failed to stop Nasser. But the women don't simply deserve an apology. They deserve justice, accountability for the agents who turned a blind eye. These athletes who were children were in fact failed at every turn by institutions only focused on monetizing their athleticism and later by law enforcement who didn't take them seriously. All they needed was one adult to do the right thing, just one. Think about how many situations that applies to, yet precious few ever did, far too late, and that is the absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout.
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.